Well, I thank you for your hospitality, inviting me to be with you this week and all the uh, support that you have provided for me, especially thank you to those who have opened their homes. I uh, would be uh, remiss indeed if I did not express my appreciation to uh, uh, particularly the Buntings who have let us uh, stay there and uh, Gerald and Norma and Jane and Matt and Sarah who have uh, invited us into their homes. Look forward to the opportunity to get more of you, to get to know more of you, and to know more of you who are here at this uh, congregation. Uh, it is a great encouragement to us when we're able to travel around the country and find that there are uh, strong congregations, uh, brethren and sisters who uh, believe as we do and have the same focus on serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you particularly that you've given me the opportunity to uh, participate with you in this series of lessons, to study with you about uh, the way in which the world confronts the view that God has given us in the scriptures, and that uh, together perhaps we are able to take captive every thought for the obedience to Jesus Christ. This evening, we turn our attention to what is perhaps the most familiar of the topics that we will discuss this week, and yet one of those which is uh, perhaps the most confusing. Because when we talk about the issue of fe feminism, we are talking about the very heart of the matter of who we are. In the beginning, God created us male and female. And having created us male and female, he has uh, made each and every one of us uh, to share in some ways in his own image, to share in our common humanity, and yet he has made us in male and female versions of that humanity. And uh, when the scriptures say that in the beginning he created male and female, he is saying something significant about who we are and uh, what we are. And we recognize the greatness of God's creation, uh, and we recognize in that creation the greatness of the Creator. And as we look at the creation around about us as we did last night and we are impressed and amazed by the awesomeness of the universe, we ought to be impressed and amazed by the awesomeness of God's creation of man. And not just that he created man, but that he created man male and female. And you'll recognize that as he has engaged in the process of creating, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. Each day he looks at what he has created and he says, it is good. And then when he reaches the culmination of his creation on the sixth day and he's created man and created man male and female, he says, it is very good. And when he says that it is very good, we may consider that he is thinking about the intricacy of the connection of all the creation that he is engaged in, that it all fits together in the way in which he intended it to fit together. And we may be amazed about the way in which the laws of nature, uh, gravity, and all the other forces combine to produce this world in all of its majesty and its awe. But we ought to always recognize this world created as it was for man and this creation culminates in placing man in the world that God had created for him. And when he says he created man in his own image, male and female created he them, he says it is very good. 
And I think that he is referring particularly when he says that to the fact of his creation of man in his own image, male and female. And it is a mystery in many ways that he has produced uh, a man in his own image and yet a man in his own image in male and female in two sexes. This is an important part of the creation account and it is an important fact that we see throughout the scriptures. But contrast that with the uh, point of view of the modern feminist. And as we have done each evening, I'll begin by trying to uh, summarize uh, some of the points of view of the uh, challenge from the world to the biblical point of view. And then we'll spend the majority of our time trying to make sure that our understanding of these topics is scriptural. But we begin with thinking about these uh, feminists and the point of view of feminism. And the point of view is feminism is the assumption that men and women are not different in any significant way. It certainly is apparent when we look at men and women physically that they are different. But physical differences between men and women are really of relatively little importance in this day and age, that in an age in which we have technology and we have machines to do much of the heavy workforce, in this day and age of civilization and laws in which we have combined together to provide for our mutual protection and uh, assurance, then we do not uh, discover any great need for the superior upper body strength of men over that of women. And in fact, when we have technology in which women can uh, be supported by the paternalistic government as opposed to uh, having a uh, husband and a father to help support her and uh, children, that a result of that union, there's less and less value of the distinction between males and females. And more than that assumption, there's this policy that men and women ought to be treated, uh, treated exactly the same that because there are no essential differences between men and women, then men and women ought to be treated exactly the same. And they conclude then that uh, boys and girls ought to be trained exactly the same way, that there should be no distinction about the kind of education that we provide to the girls versus the education that we provide to the boys. And furthermore, that strikes at the very heart of uh, who we are in our families, the expectation that the husbands and the wives' roles should be essentially the same. If, in fact, there are no fundamental differences between men and women, if, in fact, we ought to treat men and women exactly the same, and we're going to train the boys and we're going to train the girls in the same way, then we would not expect them to be either suited for or willing to accept uh, distinct different roles within the marriage relationship. Relationship. And the uh, feminists range from those who are very radically extreme to those who are only mildly infected by the ideas that we have just uh, described. But here's what radical feminists say. Since marriage constitutes slavery for women, it's clear that the women's movement must concentrate on attacking this institution. Freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage. And even though this early aim of the feminist movement has not been accomplished in its original form, nonetheless, you look at the, uh, the uh, significant differences that have been brought in marriage and our concept of marriage uh, over the last uh, 50, 60 years in America, and it has become almost a moot issue uh, compared to what it was in those early days. 
Another of the feminists, Mary Jo Bain, says in order to raise children with equality, we must take them away from families. And once again, uh, though this has not been uh, accomplished in its literal form, nonetheless, so many children these days are almost wards of the state from the time they are very young uh, until the uh, time that they have uh, reached the age of the majority and leave their families, that they are really raised by experts and not by families. And uh, the Declaration of Feminism says the end of the institution of marriage is necessary for the liberation of women. Therefore, it's important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not live individually with men. All of history must be rewritten in terms of oppression of women. We must go back to ancient female religions like witchcraft. And the early of these kind of uh, new wave of feminists recognized that there was a... Uh, a uh, battle that had to be fought about Christianity if they wanted to accomplish their goals of making men and women equal. This uh, feminist antagonism to Christianity uh, is uh, one that reduces Christianity to just a kind of a patriarchal political system and undergirding the patriarchal system that they see as oppressive to women. Uh, Gaylor said, let's forget about the mythical Jesus and look for encouragement, solace, and inspiration from real women. 2,000 years of patriarchal rule under the shadow of the cross ought to be enough to turn women toward the feminist uh, salvation of the world. With that kind of critique of Christianity and that view of gender, it is clear that there is a different point of view in the world than that of Christianity. There is a view in the world that is hostile toward the way in which the Bible talks about males and females. And we need to go back and re-examine what the scriptures have to say about uh, male and female, understand God's view of gender from the beginning, and then we can decide whether or not we want to accept the direction in which feminism is pointing us or whether we want to accept the biblical pattern for male and female roles in the family, in the church, and in the community. Take a look then at God's view of gender. Go back to the very beginning, and you recognize that he created male and female with a purpose. It was not some accidental result of evolutionary forces. It was delivered on God's part when he created the man and he created the woman. In uh, the uh, creation of the male, we read that the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it, and then the Lord God looked at the man, and not that he discovered something that he didn't already know, but he wants us to discover what he already knows. In verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Or in the words of the old King James, which still resonate in my mind, uh, help meet. And in fact, uh, as I grew up, and some of those of you who are older, you'll recognize that was almost the word synonymous for a wife was a help meet. Uh, One word, but the modern translations give us the underlying meaning, a helper that is comparable to him, a helper that is suitable for him, a helper that is meet, matching for him a helper who actually can be a helper and get the job done. 
So we see that God has created the man, and then he says the man has a job, and he says the man needs a helper uh, in this uh, endeavor that he is provided for him. Then uh, we read about uh, the uh, result of the ex ex expulsion from the uh, Garden of Eden, and uh, there is additional information about the relationship between the male and the female at that point in time. And in fact, it seems as though there is an accentuation of the distinction between the man and the woman at the point of the uh, expulsion from the Garden of Eden. That in fact, uh, we wonder whether or not the distinction between the male and the female roles is a result of uh, the sin in the garden. That does not seem to be the case. God said from the very beginning he was making the male and female, and he made the man to tend the garden, and he made the woman to be a helper for the man. And then when they are expelled from the Garden of Eden, as so many other things in the world, that relationship between them becomes more fraught. It becomes more difficult. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3 and uh, in verse 16, he says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And uh, it may be that we could read this verse in a number of different ways. It's possible to read this as saying that, in fact, you're going to suffer under the hand of your husband. And that certainly does seem to be the case in the world in which we live. It is um, the, the uh, possibility that men who are not as they ought to be, men who are not spiritual in nature, will be oppressive to the women that are in their lives, and that's a part of the result of the sin uh, that was uh, committed in the garden and the sin that exists in the world today. Nonetheless, this is only in the direction in which he had already determined that the role of the man and the woman should be. Your desire will be for your husband. You will want a husband. You will want to have a husband, and uh, he will have the uh, rule over you, he will be the head uh, in that relationship. And he says to the, to the man in uh, Genesis 3 and uh, verse uh, 17 through 19 that uh, you are going to experience the consequences of the work that you were given. You're going to experience the consequences of that in the fact that the earth is no longer going to cooperate with you. As you go out and you work in the uh, uh, ground, it will be cursed and in toil you will eat of it, and all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And the idea that uh, this man is going to experience our negative consequences in what he was already given as a result of sin is paralleled by the fact that the woman is going to experience negative consequences in the role that she was already given. And uh, one of the things that I think happens in redemption is not only that we are reclaimed for a right relationship with God, we can be reclaimed for a right relationship with one another. And that what has been put wrong by sin in the marriage relationship can be put right by our uh, redemption in Jesus Christ and our conformity to his image. 
In fact, as God goes ahead in the scriptures, he tells us that there's a different role for the man and the woman in the home. And uh, this is to return us back to the kind of relationship that he intended when he created the man and the woman in the garden in the first place. He says, of course, to the uh, women uh, in uh, Titus, just one of the passages that we could look at, that they are to admonish the, uh, the older women or to admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22 puts it in much more stark terms that the world and particularly the feminists uh, are uh, resistant to and that is wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. And uh, he says uh, to the husbands, to the men, they have a responsibility in the home that is different than the responsibility of the, of the women. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, uh, he's supposed to provide for his own. Ephesians 6 and verse uh, 4, he's supposed to be uh, in charge of the discipline of the children. And uh, in Ephesians 5 and verse 25, he is to love his wife in the same way that Christ loved the church, even to the point of sacrificing himself for his wife. And what you think about when you look at that passage, particularly in Ephesians chapter 5, which causes so much anxiety and angst, is there's a balance that God has provided here in this uh, uh, relationship. He does say in Ephesians 5 and verse 22, in the starkest of terms, wives are to be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And of course, there is uh, the uh, uh, attempt of uh, modern interpreters to suggest that Paul is just caught in the cultural values of his day and that uh, he is uh, not uh, at this point speaking with the authority of the Holy Spirit. I, I don't know how they decide which passages are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's uh, a problem that uh, uh, they'll have to resolve for themselves. For me, it's pretty clear that he is speaking with the authority of the Holy Spirit. And it's further clear that he says, this is not a cultural thing. This was from the beginning that God created male and female, and that this is like the relationship between uh, Christ and the church, which is no temporary relationship, no cultural uh, kind of artifact. Uh, the wives are supposed to be subject to their husbands in the same way that uh, the uh, uh, church is subject to uh, the uh, Lord. And in Ephesians 5 and verse 25, the husbands are to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so those two things match. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, when we study that passage, uh, you'll look at the whole context. He's talking in the book of Ephesians about the church, and he's telling us about the church and the church's relationship to Jesus Christ, and he uses the example that they should know about the relationship between the man and the woman to say this is the way it is between Jesus and the church. And he says, when he writes this, it's a great mystery, this relationship between Christ and the church. But he's also saying to us, I think, in that passage in Ephesians 5, it's a great mystery, the relationship between the man and the woman. And if you want to understand the relationship between the husband and the wife in a marriage relationship, you need to understand about the relationship between uh, Jesus and the church. 
And of course, uh, you know, from the feminist point of view, and maybe from the women who are here in the audience to some extent, that seems a little unfair that the wife is supposed to be subject to the husband and that the husband gets to be the head of the wife. But you should notice the way in which the Lord has carefully balanced those responsibilities, that uh, there is a sense in which he has provided us the ideal solution to the relationship between two parties. If, in fact, uh, you look at, uh, you know, uh, two siblings and they're arguing with one another and uh, who is right and who is wrong and who's going to get to have their way and uh, what kind of compromise are they going to work out. Uh, is usually it comes down to one of the parents are going to have to adjudicate that dispute between them. Because as... Uh, I don't know, my children always said, probably your children do too, you're not the boss of me, that uh, the two children feel like, you know, they're equal. And so there's no way for them to solve this problem until the parent steps in and solve this problem. Uh, you might have a dispute between two workers uh, in the workplace. And, uh, you know, if they're at the same level in the organization, who should do this, who should have done that, uh, who's going to do which part of the project. And, uh, you know, they, they feel like they have equal kind of power in the relationship. Who's going to solve that? Well, the boss will step in and adjudicate that conflict and decide between them, this is what will be the solution. This is who will do what. Or if you have two neighbors and they had a dispute about the hedge between their property on the property line, and uh, one wants to cut it down and one wants to leave it, then uh, how do they decide that? They are equal kind of in the ownership of this hedge that is right down the middle of the property line. Uh, they have uh, equal kind of power and equal kind of vote. How are they going to solve that problem? They may have to resort to going to court and having a judge to decide that. Think more specifically about a husband and a wife uh, in a home together, and they're engaged in this kind of dispute in which, you know, each of them thinks they're right. Each one of them thinks that they have uh, the correct solution to the problem. Each one of them thinks that it should be done their way. And who's going to adjudicate that uh, difference between them? Well, they certainly can't go to their parents. Which parent will they go to? That's already decided the question. Uh, they can't ask their children. They don't have a boss. We don't want them to take it to the court. God says, I know that's going to arise, and here's the solution. The husband gets to decide. The husband is the one who gets to adjudicate the dispute. And the women right away will say, well, that's not fair. Why does he get to adjudicate? And God says, okay, I'll take care of that. Husbands, you get to make the decision. You get to decide who's going to be right and which way the decision is going to go. But you need to do that in the same way that Christ made a sacrifice and gave his life for the church. You need to do what is in the best interest of your wife so far as you understand what her best interests are. That doesn't mean that the husband has to always do what the wife wants to do. It means that he has the responsibility to decide what is best for her, not what is best for him in that circumstance. And if we can't solve our problems on that kind of basis, then we can't solve our problems at all. In other words, there is a balance in this relationship that God in his wisdom has provided. There is a difference in the roles in which God has provided for men and women in the church. 
And uh, in the church, of course, you recognize that he is assigned to men their leadership role in the church, and that uh, principally it is the uh, men who are going to serve as the elders and the deacons and who are going to be revolved in the teaching. It is the men, he says in 1 Timothy 2 and 8, who are going to lift up their hands to pray in every place. And he says in that same passage in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 11 that the women ought to learn in uh, silence and that uh, they have the responsibility for being supportive in that uh, worship, but they are not the ones who are going to be the leaders in that worship. And, of course, uh, we might uh, further parse the uh, role that men and women have uh, in the passage in Titus. The elderly women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and to uh, train their children. We have a responsibility uh, to one another, and those responsibilities are divided up in different ways for males and females. But there is not the same role in the church for men and the same role for women. They are different, and those differences are based on the fact that we are created male and female. And consequently, it is an important role issue uh, to understand about uh, gender. It is an important uh, question for us about, you know, well, what, what, is, uh, what is my responsibility? And that, that uh, question is only answered, what is my responsibility as a man? What is my responsibility as a woman? And that leads to uh, recognition of all of the kinds of, uh, of uh, dissent that is created in the world today because of the politicization of this issue of maleness and femaleness. And uh, it is not like some of the other issues in which we have discussed, in which uh, if we talk about environmentalism or we're talking about some kind of humanism, or as we'll talk about later uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, hedonism or feminism or Gnosticism, it's not like, uh, you know, there is uh, some kind of uh, thought process and some people might be on one side and some on the other. This is the thing that divides us right down the middle, they're, they're, the, the issue here is male and female. And uh, to have divided people up who are uh, uh, supposed to uh, be cooperative together in the most intimate fashion in a marriage relationship, that's, uh, that's a pretty intense kind of dispute that is uh, emotional, maybe beyond any of these other issues that we've talked about. And that we turn that into a political tug-of-war uh, and a social policy issue, that is as divisive as it can possibly be. So I understand that there are two significant questions that we have to answer in order to be able to address the questions of feminism. Uh, first of all, we have to ask this question, should males and females be treated differently? Uh, should they be treated exactly the same? I understand that the founding documents of this country, all men are created equal, and of course right there's a typical controversy. Does male mean male, or does man mean male, or does man mean male and female? And uh, whether or not uh, that was in the minds of, the, uh, of uh, Thomas Jefferson and the other founders is not really the question today. The question is, you know, exactly what does it mean that they were created equal? They created equal before the law. And uh, I think that's something that we would all uh, agree to be the fact, whether we're talking about males or females, everybody should have equal standing before the law and do 
process and equal protection before the law. But uh, we're talking about something more fundamental than this. We're talking about the question of whether or not there's some real difference between men and women that would compel us to have to treat men and women differently in our day-to-day -day dealings and in our families. And part of the answer to this question depends upon another question. That is, are there any innate behavioral differences between males and females? If, in fact, you know, the only differences between males and females are physiological, then maybe we could uh, say with some justification we ought to treat men and women exactly the same, boys and girls exactly the same. But if there are some innate differences, and we're not talking about just uh, the, the physical differences, some psychological differences, some behavioral differences, from the very beginning, are boys and girls different? And if boys and girls are fundamentally different from the very beginning, then you probably shouldn't be treating them exactly the same. But we are engaged in America in a great experiment to see if we can take our boys and our girls and put them into co-educational institutions and treat them exactly the same. If, in fact, we can uh, teach them the same subjects in the same way with the same teachers, if, in fact, we can train them for the same kinds of disciplines and the same kinds of, uh, of uh, professions and the same kind of roles, if, in fact, we can put exactly the same amount of money into men's sports and women's sports, and at the end result, we're going to have exactly the same kind of people. If there are innate behavioral differences between them, that's an experiment that's going to fail. And I think most of us recognize that there are innate behavioral differences between males and females. That is, from the very moment of their birth, males and females have some distinct differences. And the one that most all psychologists and all social scientists are going to accept is the fact that boys are more aggressive than females. From the very beginning, they are more aggressive than the females. And of course, uh, you know, that's uh, a matter of some debate between parents and uh, uh, particularly uh, uh, those who have girls and those who have boys. And, uh, you know, it's been kind of an interesting thing to observe over the years. You have uh, young couples about the same age, and one has a, uh, the couples has a boy, and the other couple has a girl. And uh, the couple that has a girl, you know, they will say to the couple that has a boy, you know, our girl's exactly the same as your boy, that there's no real difference between their behavior. And the couple with the boy will say, well, I don't think that's the case and uh, the couple with the girl, and then they have another child, and it's a boy, all of a sudden it's like you've waken up. There's a difference between boys and girls. Uh, by the time the boy has, uh, you know, uh, taken the vacuum cleaner apart, flushed the cat down the toilet, and jumped off the refrigerator and broken his leg, you recognize boys are different than girls. And if they are different in this way, if they, this were all, you would need to treat the boys differently than the girls. And that doesn't mean that you need to be, you know, uh, altogether punitive, and it doesn't mean that you need to be altogether uh, uh, intent on beating that aggressiveness out of them, but you better train them differently, and you're going to have to have different kind of parenting style for the boys and the girls. And you'll recognize this, too, that the girls are more verbal than the boys. Uh, from the very beginning, girls speak sooner than the boys. 
one of the things that happens when we become parents, we become kind of competitive, you know, and it's always important that our children walk as early as possible and talk as early as possible. And the parents that have girls are way ahead in that race because the girls almost always walk sooner and talk sooner uh, than the boys. And they uh, not only talk sooner, they talk better, and they talk longer, and they practice more, and they're better at it than the guys are. Uh, and of course, I know exactly what you're thinking. Uh, boy, can that guy talk up there? He must be a girl. There are differences in the way in which boys and girls talk, that's for sure. And of course, there are some girls, uh, and everybody has to recognize this uh, is the case, there are some girls that are more aggressive than some boys. But the average aggressiveness of boys is significantly greater than the average aggressiveness of the females. And likewise, the verbal. Boys are more competitive as a result of this than uh, girls are. And uh, that does not mean that girls are not competitive, but they compete about different kind of things typically than the boys do, and they compete in different kind of ways. Uh, very frequently, where the boys uh, have one rule in the games they make up and play, and that is you have to win, the girls' games very frequently have no clear winner. They're just maybe more intricate kind of rules of how we can uh, do this and how we can cooperate together. Uh, girls are much more uh, likely to engage in touching behavior. Uh, little girls, even when they are just uh, still in their mother's arms uh, and can barely reach up, are much more likely to pat uh, their mother's face, uh, to look at their mother's face longer than the boys. You can put the boys in the crib and the girl in the crib, and you can put pictures with uh, uh, projectors on, this, on the uh, ceiling above them, and you put up faces, and they both look at the faces. You put up the truck, and they both look at the truck. But the boys are going to spend a whole lot more time looking at the truck than the girls are going to spend looking at the truck. They prefer to look at the faces. There is a difference innately between males and females, and almost every psychologist is going to acknowledge that these things are the case. Males have more negative emotions than females do. One of the things that you'll see as a pattern of this is that as they grow up, we find that we have really difficulty in getting males to be cooperative. We have difficulty in getting them to comply to the, to the rules. We have difficulty in getting them to be productive and cooperative in life. That's why we have over a million men incarcerated for crimes, violent crimes in America, and we have Yes, an increasing number of females, but not nearly that percentage of females. That the big problem that we have as we raise our children is we need somehow to train our boys to be productive and cooperative and to be uh, uh, builders instead of being uh, destroyers. Uh, they can't be treated the same way. And of course, when we get to be older, and particularly perhaps when we engage in uh, dating behavior and marry, you recognize males and females have different conversational kinds of styles. Uh, that uh, women uh, are more likely to show appreciation, uh, men are more likely to avoid emotional conversation and emotional expression. The uh, woman says to the man, husband says to the wife, uh, dating couple, she says to him, we need to talk. 
And of course, to him, that's the most terrifying expression of all, because he probably knows what she means when she says we need to talk, is we need to talk about emotions, we need to talk about relationship, we need to talk about us, and it's like, I don't know, we don't need to talk about us, I think we're doing okay. You can almost always predict this is the case, if we're not talking about us, the guy thinks we're okay. If we're not talking about us, she thinks maybe there's a problem. When we have to talk about us, he thinks there's a problem. And she thinks if we can talk about us, there won't be any problem. The uh, discussion between uh, males and females is very different. And one of the things that you see is women get together and start conversations. They want to establish similarities, commonalities. One of the things that men do in conversation is one-upmanship. The competitiveness gets in. Uh, establish differences. If it's pretty clear this guy already has an advantage in the uh, kind of fish that he's caught, then uh, we're going to change the conversation to uh, hunting or we're going to change the conversation to um, how much money you made. We try and establish the differences and we try and establish the dominance in the conversation. Women are much more likely to try and suggest things Men are much more likely to just tell, this is what we want you to do. This is what you should do. It's one of the difficulties that we have in business when women are in positions of uh, management supervisory uh, positions over men is they try and take this kind of approach and uh, you know they will give you this uh, uh, kind of suggestion, don't we think we ought to do this? And he says, no, I don't think so, and he doesn't do it. Uh, the guy's not going to say to uh, probably other guys, you think we ought to do this. If he thinks that's what they ought to do, he says, go ahead and do this. And if you don't think that's what you need to do, then you're going to have to push back pretty hard. And consequently, when the, when the female manager says to the guy, you think we ought to do this, no, he, he's not, it's, not even, it's not even something he has to confront because it was just a suggestion. Even when she says, uh, do this, it almost always has this telltale upward uh, uh, turn at the end that is like kind of it's a question as to whether it's going to happen or not. It's not going to get done in that way. Uh, women are much better at apologizing than men. Men are really a whole lot better at boasting than women. And, uh, you know, that's maybe the thing that they do best. Uh, Tigger climb trees best or bounce best, men boast best. That's the thing that they're best at, probably. Uh, women want to talk about the relationship. Men want to talk about things. Uh, women have friends that they have all these shared kind of emotions and conversation with. Men have friends that they do things with, and they don't know anything else about them. My wife wants to know about the guys I used to play basketball with. And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I, I do know he's got a wicked hook shot from the left side. That's what I know. The uh, conversations are different between men and women. Women are much more likely to use self-directed humor. Uh, men are much more likely to use humor that's outward-directed. And in fact, it's not just outward-directed humor. It is a tool. Sometimes it is a weapon. And we sum this up by suggesting that uh, conversations between women are horizontal, they build relationships. Conversations between men are vertical. They establish the hierarchy. They establish the dominance in the relationship. Uh, when men and women don't have the same conversational styles. And of course, sometimes we wonder why that's the case. Is it innate? Is it training? It is some of both. 
But here is the value of the marriage relationship, that men have to learn from women to be communicative, and particularly to be communicative about their emotions. Men, if they're going to be successful in marriage, have to learn about empathy, about feeling what the other person is feeling and knowing somehow how to respond to that. Women generally already know that by the time they get married. Uh, women, on the other hand, need to learn from men to be more careful about what they say and to be more direct when there is something that they need or something that they want done. And, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is that men need women and the women's conversation more than the women need the men's conversation. Men very seldom have best friends that are males with whom they can share the most intimate aspects of their life. They have depended for emotional support on their mother or their sister or their friends who were girls or on their wife. Women have a whole lot more of that kind of emotional support from other women. And uh, that's exactly, I think, what God said from the beginning. It's not good for the man to be alone. There is a sense in which the conversation between men and women almost misses one another uh, sometimes when they're trying to do their best. This... Uh, Situation arises in one form or another any number of times in a marriage relationship. Uh, husband comes home, the wife says to him, we got a problem with little Billy. And he says, well, and he's a good husband, so he puts down his book, turns off the TV, whatever, pays attention. Well, what kind of problem do they have? And she says, well, you know, he doesn't eat his lunch, and then he eats a snack in the afternoon, and then he won't eat his supper. And I, I'm at my wit's end. And, and the husband is a good husband, so he thinks about that, and he says, okay, here's what you need to do. Tell him starting in the middle of the morning what he's going to have for lunch, get him prepared for that, then put it on the table, and if he doesn't eat it, just leave it on the table and say, that's what you're going to have for snack, might as well eat it now, and uh, then uh, don't give him any other snack, and then he'll eat a supper. And, uh, you know, he can turn the TV back on, he can pick up his newspaper, he's done his job. He's done a great job. Is his wife happy with him? No, she's not happy with him. She knew all of that. She knew every bit of that, just as well or better than he did. What she wanted from him was she wanted some sense of empathy. I understand how difficult it is being at home with these children all day long. You're doing a great job. I think Billy's a marvelous child. He's been difficult, but you are doing a wonderful job with him. That's what he needed to say. And not provide just a solution. These differences between men and women are valuable, and uh, God knew what he was doing when he created us innately different. There are advantages, of course, and disadvantages to both roles, and we bring to one another, in uh, a marriage in particular, we bring to one another something useful in that relationship. And, and it's the traditional roles, really, that God has uh, suggested uh, in the scriptures. When we come together, the husband can do some things better, and the wife can do some things better, and the two of them can together can do life better as they help one another. Uh, one of the things you may uh, appreciate about this is uh, uh, from a couple of uh, social uh, scientists, they were studying about groups and how groups function 
and uh, what makes groups effective. And so they studied groups and they discovered in almost every group there are two leadership roles. Two leadership roles. Every group needs a leader. And really every group needs two leaders. What they discovered was that in uh, these kinds of uh, groups, there are those who tell other people what to do, who organize the work, who make sure this person does their part, this person does their part, that those parts fit together to get the whole job done. But they also discovered people are not cogs in a machine. People are not ants who just do what they're supposed to do without some kind of emotional response about that. People get their feelings hurt. People want to feel like they're appreciated. People want to feel like even the contribution that they make that's not the same as somebody else is recognized, that somebody notices them, that somebody appreciates what they have done. And in the groups that are successful, you got to have somebody who lays out the work and makes sure it gets done. And you also got to have somebody who tends to the emotional needs of everybody in the group. And it's hard for one person to do both of those things. Lots of management texts suggest that uh, good leaders got to have these people skills and he's got to have these task kind of skills in order to uh, be successful. And you do. If you're going to have a successful group, you got to do that. But you'll recognize, of course, when you talk about task and socio-emotional needs, task leaders and socio-emotional leaders, isn't that exactly the way God has designed the man and the woman? Isn't that exactly the kind of roles that he's assigned them in the family? And think about this, the family's not just a work group that has to get this product out. It's not just this work group that has to finish this task. The family is as much about the social-emotional connections between the members of the family as it is about whether we can keep the house clean or whether we can keep the yard mowed or whether we can keep the bills paid. It is about the relationships and the socio-emotional leadership that the wife can provide, the mother can provide in the family, is, is at least maybe more important even than the task leadership that the father provides when he protects and when he provides and when he disciplines. That these are important needs that people have, important needs that the family has and that God has planned for these things. And we think, when we think about uh, uh, feminism, you know, one, one, of the, one of the images that comes to our mind and one of the concerns about that is, you know, how is this going to be expressed in the mannerisms and the behaviors of the feminist, but maybe even more so, how is this going to be expressed in the mannerisms and the behaviors of the men, the way in which the feminists would like for them to be? What do we mean by male and female. What do we mean by masculine behavior and feminine behavior? And I thought about that a long time, and I'm going back to the proverbial wisdom of the nursery rhymes. What are little girls made of? Sugar and spice and everything nice, that's what little girls are made of. When I was a uh, child, I used to like that rhyme, and I could say those lines with, uh, you know, the, just the right kind of sneering, contemptuous tone in my voice. That's what little girls are made of. And uh, I recognize that to some extent in my uh, uh, sons 
at some points in their life. What are little boys made of? Snakes and snails and puppy dog tails. That's what little boys are made of. But I also observed in my class that the little girls could say those lines with considerable kind of contempt in their, in their voice, too. Or maybe not so much contempt. That's more of a male thing. Disgust. You know, that's, the, that's what boys are. <clears throat> it's terrible. And uh, what does this suggest about our serious topic? It suggests, I think, the difference between masculinity and uh, femininity. That at the... Uh, heart of being a man is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, to provide, to protect. There is something rough and tumble about the boys the way they are innately. There's something adventuresome about the boys the way they are innately, but that needs to be directed in such a way that it is uh, going to be useful to the group. It's going to be useful to the family. It's going to be useful to others that they are providing and protecting and leading because that's who they are. That's what they do. It's the heart of what it means to be a man. It's what men should be trained as they grow up to feel that this is what your purpose is. The rites of passage in so many primitive cultures around the world for young men was a very typical kind of pattern that when the boy got to the point where he was supposed to be a man, that he had to engage in some kind of arduous activity. He had to engage in something that was painful. And yet that arduous activity that was painful and dangerous to him resulted in some benefit, some good that he could bring back to the community. He had to go out on his own and kill a lion. He had to go up on a high plateau and starve himself until he had a vision that was of some use as he brought it back to the elders of the uh, tribe. He learned through those rites of passage. That's what it means to be a man. Today, my son, you are a man because you've learned to take that when you which God has put in you of assertiveness and aggressiveness and strength. And you've learned to use that for the benefit of the community, to use that for the benefit of those who are less uh, uh, capable than you are. And that means when God says to the man that uh, you're the head of the woman as Christ is the head of the church that he has accepted a responsibility to take care of that wife and those children to the very fact of his own life, just as Jesus died on the cross. It is the sense that the buck stops here. There is no hiding behind the uh, uh, children or hiding behind the wife. I'm the one that's responsible, and I step up and take that kind of uh, responsibility. At the heart of this, there is the sense of a tender pursuit of the woman in the first place, taking her arm to guide her from one uh, place to the other, initiating romance. And, of course, it's certainly possible for women to say this is the way we ought to go or to initiate the uh, lovemaking in a marriage relationship. But it's more of an invitation on the part of the woman. It is more of a guiding, leading role on the part of the man. He feels this pretty strongly. And when we talk about uh, femininity, I would say the essence of femininity is this freedom to nurture and to serve. 
And of course, that's the last thing that the feminists are one going to want to think about, the traditional female role, that it is a matter of, of uh, freedom. But it was for this that God created her, to be a helper, suitable, corresponding to a man. And she was made from the man, not to be his inferior, not to be uh, uh, something to be used or mistreated, but to be his helper. And when God makes someone who is a helper, I can assure you God makes someone who can get the job done. And feminism has attempted to free women from the man's side in order to free her to be herself or something of that nature. But what is that self? The self of the woman is uh, to be uh, a servant, to be one who nurtures, to be one who tends, and to be one who is uh, able to understand other people and to meet their needs and to bring them together. And women want to, uh, the feminists want women to be liberated from that kind of, uh, of role and to uh, play the role of the men, I guess. But are they really free when they've been freed of their nature, of what they were made to do? Are they really going to be happy in that kind of freedom? You think about this. Here are two people jumping out of a parachute, one out of an airplane, one with a parachute and one without, and which one is free? Uh, you could uh, make the analogy go whatever way you want to, but you better want the restraints of that chute when you jump out of that airplane. Or in the, uh, in the uh, words of the uh, golden book that we read to our children over and over, I think it was Tootles the Train. I was trying to remember the name of that. But the rule is stay on the track. Do not leave the track. And of course, you know, the train is like, this is terrible. I have to stay on the track. I have to stay on the track. And I, I'm restrained and I'm limited. But you know what happens when you get off the track. When you get off the track, you really can't go anywhere. When we are going contrary to our nature, we're not really going to go anywhere. And the uh, sense here of uh, the difference between male and female should not be interpreted that women are weaker or they're less smart uh, or they're more easily afraid or uh, uh, in any sense inferior about that. That's not the point that God was intending when he said, I'm going to make man I'm going to make man male and female in my image. That it is, and uh, you know, would be a really interesting study. Go and look at the scriptures and the places in which it speaks of God as having these kind of feminine characteristics. But the man and the woman together are the image of God. It's not that the man was the image of the God and the woman was some kind of inferior subordinate about that. Uh, Women have their, uh, their uh, advantages and they have their strengths and their capabilities and they're designed so that men and women together are better than either one of them would have been separate. And uh, this is, as far as I can discern it, the biblical position about that. And uh, when the feminists want to change those roles... And they want to expand the limits of uh, women's behavior so that they are like men. They are going to find, and I think they have found, that that results in 
significant problems, significant problems for men and women as they try and understand who they are in the world, and significant problems for the family as we're not able to uh, stay together as a husband and a wife, we're not able to take care of our children. It results in significant problems for society, and uh, that's not surprising because God's plan is what works. And the uh, only thing that's going to work for us in any of area of our life in which God has uh, spoken is the biblical pattern, and that's true in terms of the church, and it's true in terms of the family, and it's true in terms of our own uh, person, uh, whether we are male or female. And it is true when we uh, recognize the poverty of our lives, the emptiness of our lives, when we understand the guilt that we bear because of our sins, there's only one plan that works, and that's God's plan. No matter how men may have distorted that or changed that, uh, there is only one solution to the problem of sin, and that's Jesus Christ and his blood. And uh, there's only one way to come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's confession and faith and baptism. And if you're here this evening and you have need for uh, forgiveness of sins, if you have need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, he is here, he extends his invitation, and we sing this song to encourage you.